Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In today's discussion, we're talking about criminal procedure for the first time. There's a lot to cover, and the detail of each particular section is more detail than you might need in order to be able competently to answer the questions. So what I'm going to be doing is distributing the detail of many of the legislative provisions in full in our slides. And in each discussion, I'm going to pick up and talk about some of the specific provisions that arise most commonly in practice and also arise most commonly in the bar exam. I commend to you the process of reading and revising each of the slides, even though I may not speak to them in detail. Now, in Victoria, the first issue that is examinable and that arises in practice is the commencement of criminal proceedings. And this is covered by the Criminal Procedure Act, uh, Section 5, 6 and following. So the way that criminal proceedings in Victoria are commenced is the process of filing or signing a charge sheet, filing a direct indictment or the direction of a court, but that's only in relation to where a person is to be prosecuted for perjury. And you'll see from section six, which is our slide two, the way that proceedings are commenced by charge sheet, that the necessity for it to be filed with the court. I'd like to focus your attention, please, on the requirements of a charge sheet or indictment. And this is covered in Schedule 1 to the Criminal Procedure Act. This is an issue that's really commonly assessed, which is an obligation either to draft a charge sheet or to draft an indictment. So if the um, call of the question relates to drafting the indictment or drafting the charge sheet, the very first thing that's mentioned in your answer is Criminal Procedure Act Schedule 1. And you'll see from slide three what needs to be included in such a document. So in relation to each allegation, there must be a statement of offence, a statement of particulars. And if it's a statutory offence, you need to name the statute which is the source. So in the past papers, and we'll come to past papers in, in future discussions, but also you can have a look for yourself in the meantime, as many of them are published by the Victorian Bar, the question that's formulated is of the nature of the examiner telling you a group of facts and giving you information as to which charge the police or the prosecution wishes to lay, and then inviting you to draft the charge or draft the indictment. So here, for instance, I've included a couple of examples on um, slide four. Let's assume that the charge is one of theft and you've been told specifically that the prosecution wishes to charge the accused with a charge of theft of X item on a particular date at a particular suburb. In order to comply with Schedule 1, you would draft that the, for instance, in an indictment, the Director of Prose Public Prosecutions charges that here you must name the accused, so ABC, at and particularise the suburb in Victoria on and name the date, please, stole a particular item belonging to a particular victim. And then, of course, the statement of offence. So you need to specify the name of the charge and the section that it's alleged to contravene, in this case, theft contrary to Section 74 of the Crimes Act of 1958. 
So moving back one slide, you can see that such a charge carries the statement of offence. So it includes all of the elements that the accused would be charged with. It also particularises the charge using ordinary language. So in that, it names the accused, it names the suburb, it names the date, it names the item which is the subject of the theft, and it identifies the alleged victim. So those particulars are enough that the accused has enough information that they can identify what they've been charged with and decide whether or not they wish to plead guilty to that offence or not guilty. Another version I've included on charge two, a more complex version, which is armed robbery. So you would receive enough information if this were a bar exam question to identify that the DPP, for instance, wanted to charge the accused with an offence of armed robbery and name the section of the Crimes Act. And the way that you might draft it is a charge that the name of the accused at a particular suburb in Victoria on a particular date robbed a particular victim of certain property, namely identify the property, and at the time, he had with him or her an offensive weapon, namely a name weapon. So you need to have enough information about the elements of the offence that you can organise it. You must name the accused, you must name the alleged location of the offence, name the date, name the victim. And if there are particulars such as a particular item of property or a particular weapon, they must be named before you move on to the statement of the offence, which is simply the offence and the alleged provision that is contravened. So at slide five, you see further details in relation to Schedule 1. There might be, and you might think that this would be too complex for an examiner to assess, but in practice it comes up quite frequently. It could be a course of conduct charge. There could be an indictment or a charge sheet that has charges for related offences. There could be a charge against multiple accused, in which case each of the accused must be identified in that charge. And though it is not the question that's often asked, just for the sake of completeness, I mention Schedule 1 obliges that if the prosecution raises an indictment in a superior court against an accused, the names of the witnesses to be proposed to be called must be included on the indictment. So those particulars are common to both charge sheets and indictments. And as mentioned, though it feels like it's such a specific area to assess, it's frequently assessed. So have Schedule 1 at your, at, um, your hand uh, during the exam and make sure that you have a go at past papers that have invited you to draft such a charge. You'll see from slide six um, some of the details that I've foreshadowed that I'm not going to go through in every particular. Section 7, summary offences, as you may be aware, must be filed, must be commenced within 12 months after the date of alleged commission of the offence, but there's no time limit in relation to indictable offences. And if you need a refresher course on the difference between an indictable offence and a summary offence, you look at the maximum penalty prescribed for a particular offence. So dig out your Crimes Act versus your Summary Offences Act of Victoria, any offence that carries a maximum penalty of more than two years imprisonment is an indictable offence. Any offence that carries a maximum penalty of two years or less imprisonment is a summary offence. So if it is alleged the accused has committed a summary offence, there are 12 months from the date of alleged commission. 
Now the details of slides six, seven and eight in part are for noting, so have a good look at those when you have the time. Um, where a charge sheet contains a charge for a summary offence, so an offence punishable by a maximum of two years, or an indictable offence that may be heard and determined summarily, which I'll get to in a moment, then the matters are typically listed for mention hearings in the Magistrates' Court. Explain that in a moment as well. In relation to indictable offences that may not be heard and determined summarily or indictable offences that the prosecution submits should not be heard and determined summarily, the matters are listed for filing hearing. So think of the Magistrates' Court as being that busy court that deals with two streams of criminal cases. One is the overwhelming number, summary offences and indictable offences that may be heard and determined summarily. That's the overwhelming number of cases that are dealt with in Victoria. They are listed for mention, which is the start of summary proceedings in the Magistrates' Court. Indictable offences that can't be heard and determined summarily or the prosecution submits shouldn't be heard and determined summarily start in the committal stream of the Magistrates' Court and the first stage in the committal stream is a filing hearing. So if you, like me, enjoy maths and you like to plot that out, think of the two streams as splitting at that point. Even though they're both started by charge sheet, the summary offences will stay in the mention stream and the matters that must proceed to a superior court or may proceed to a superior court proceed through the filing hearing, which is the start of committal proceedings. I've noted at slide nine, place of hearing, though it's not usually examined. If you're interested, the location of Magistrates Court, which is the court of natural jurisdiction, is either the place where the offence is alleged to have been committed. So you look to the court that is nearest to that place or the place of residence of the accused. So though the Magistrates Court jurisdiction is ensured by the filing of the charge, the location of Magistrates Court to which attention is focused on commencement is determined by one or both of those factors. Slide 10 and 11 and 12 provide more information about the procedure with respect to summons. So we'll come back to the concept of summons when we look at bail applications in one of the sessions to come. The Criminal Procedure Act, like the Bail Act, indicates a presumption of some form of parsimony. If a person is likely to respond to a summons, which doesn't involve any intrusion into their freedom, such as a bail order, then summons is preferred. If, and have a look at those provisions here, I'm paraphrasing at a very, very general level, but if it is unlikely that the accused will reply to a summons, then the Magistrates Court moves to the level of a warrant to arrest and or the police can become involved in deciding to apply for either bail or remand in relation to the accused. So just to plant the seed for a discussion to come, they're the three levels of invitation that an accused receives upon charge. Summons is the least intrusive, bail is the second, and then of course remand is the third. So looking then at your jottings as to the commencement of a magistrate's court matter in the summary stream, you'll remember 
that it starts with a hearing called a mention. And the mention and the summary stream process applied to summary offences, which I've now said a few times, are offences punishable by a maximum penalty of two years imprisonment or indictable offences that may be heard and determined summarily. So there's two things there. You'll remember indictable offences are offences punishable by a maximum of more than two years imprisonment where we talk about a charge that can be heard and determined summarily. That is a, an adverb that relates to the determination in the magistrate's court. So heard and determined before a magistrate um, in the magistrate's court of Victoria. Here, may I focus your attention on sections 27, 28 and 29 of the Criminal Procedure Act. If indeed you're studying for the bar exam, as I know many of you are, this seems to be assessed nearly every intake, um, this application for summary resolution of an indictable matter. So looking at section 27, it's rather straightforward. If an offence is a summary one, it is to be heard and determined summarily. That's point one. Point two is assuming that you have an indictable offence, so that is an offence punishable by more than two years imprisonment, Section 28 of the Criminal Procedure Act allows that charge to be resolved summarily in a number of circumstances. One is that that indictable offence is, here I'm halfway down, slide 14, an indictable offence that is a level 5 or level 6 offence or punishable by level 5 or level 6 imprisonment or fine or both. Level 5 or Level 6 imprisonment are offences punishable by a maximum of 5 or 10 years as per that final bullet point on slide 14. So looking, for instance, at the Crimes Act 1958 of Victoria, an offence of recklessly causing injury under Section 18 is punishable by a maximum of 5 years imprisonment and that is Level 6 imprisonment and therefore it may be heard and determined summarily under section 28. Under that same provision of section 18 of the Crimes Act, intentionally causing injury is punishable by a maximum of 10 years imprisonment, which is level five imprisonment, and therefore it may be heard and determined summarily under section 28. So look please to the maximum penalty if it's characterised as being level five or level six imprisonment, then an application can be made for summary resolution. Further, even if it's not prescribed as being of level five or level six imprisonment, so for instance, if it were level four imprisonment, which is 15 years maximum, the other group of offences that can be heard and determined summarily are offences referred to in Schedule 2 to the Criminal Procedure Act. And I'll give you a couple of examples on slide 15. One key example while you're looking at that section of the Crimes Act is Section 17 of the Crimes Act recklessly causing serious injury. This is punishable by a maximum of level four imprisonment or 15 years. So you'd have a look at level four, you'd think, well, it's not level five or six imprisonment, therefore it can't be heard and determined summarily. But recklessly caused serious injury is one of those offences included in Schedule 2. So even though it's not of level five or level six imprisonment, as it's been named in Schedule 2, under Section 28 of the Criminal Procedure Act, it may be heard and determined summarily, provided that Section 29 is satisfied. So use the Section 28 test as the first stage, and then you move on to Section 29. Moving to slide 15, 
I've given you a couple of examples of Schedule 2 offences, one of which I've just talked you through, which is an offence under Section 17 of the Crimes Act, causing serious injury recklessly. Schedule 2 does not permit that charge to be resolved summarily, where the alleged victim is an emergency worker on duty, a custodial officer on duty, or a youth justice custodial worker on duty, as defined. So though causing serious injury recklessly is one such crime that can be heard and determined summarily, it doesn't fall within that characterisation if one of the victims falls within that category. So you just need to look at the words of the schedule carefully. Another example of a crime that can be heard and determined summarily is theft section 74, which is fine because on its face, that's level five imprisonment, 10 years maximum. But looking to Schedule 2, it indicates that like with robbery, theft can only be heard and determined summarily if the amount particularised is less than $100,000. So look, look carefully to Section 28 and 29 of the Criminal Procedure Act. Look to Schedule 2. And if the offence falls within one of those characterisations, then it can be heard and determined summarily subject to Section 29 of the Criminal Procedure Act. So your answer has to tackle Section 28 and then you move on to Section 29 of the Criminal Procedure Act when a summary offence may be heard and determined summarily. The preconditions are two. One is the court considers it appropriate to be determined summarily, having regard to matters that I'm just about to discuss. And two is that the accused consents to a summary hearing. So of the pool of indictable offences that may be heard and determined summarily, the court must grant the application and the accused must consent to the application. A couple of things here. One is this only applies to Victorian offences. So in Commonwealth matters, it's another discussion for a completely separate day and not acutely examinable. The prosecutor's consent is needed. So that's not what we're discussing here. We're talking about Victorian crimes. So the court, in considering whether it's appropriate for the charge to be heard and determined summarily, has regard to the matters listed on the second bullet point of slide 16, and they are circumstances including the seriousness of the offending, including the nature of the offence, the manner in which the offence is alleged to have been committed, organisation, aggravating circumstances, and so forth. 29.2b, the adequacy of sentences available to the court. So here, note, please, the magistrate's court may only impose a maximum of two years imprisonment on one offence and five years imprisonment on a series of offences at the same hearing. So that's going to be very important for the magistrate. You might think that the magistrate would not grant an application for summary jurisdiction if upon the hearing and the sentencing, it turned out they would impose more than two years imprisonment and they ought not to have granted that jurisdiction. So have a look, please, at the balance of the matters in 29 subsection 2. The magistrate's court must make its own determination of the appropriateness and separately the accused must consent to the summary hearing. So if the accused withholds their consent and they're charged with any indictable offence, they may elect to proceed in the committal stream and um, the matter would be determined in the ordinary course in the county court or the Supreme Court. 
So there's the next question, which is why might an accused consent to a matter proceeding in the summary stream? Typically, the sorts of uh, matters that a, a, an accused might take into account, hypothetically, would include the fact that the magistrate's court can hear the matter quickly and it might be that uh, fewer court appearances are needed if the matter resolves in the mention stream. So it then might be that legal fees associated with the process, if the person chooses to brief a lawyer, would then be reduced. Some accused, I understand, might be drawn to the relative lack of formality of the magistrate's court. They might consider a superior court more technical than their skills, their instructions would allow. So they're the types of factors that an accused might take into account. They must be aware or made aware and be aware that they are foregoing their right to trial by jury. So a consent to summary jurisdiction means that the charge will never be heard before a judge and jury. It will be dispensed with in that summary justice form. If they are pleading guilty to a charge, of course, they would not proceed before judge and jury. They would proceed before a sentencing judge alone. So there, if you were asked a question that related to the types of factors that an accused might take into account in considering whether the charge should be resolved summarily, it often comes back to convenience, time, lack of formality and so forth. But you must include, of course, in your advice, you might think, reference to the fact that it does involve foregoing that right to trial by jury. And, and right, of course, here is used um, to summarise the process that might um, ordinarily follow. So see slide 17, section 30 for the procedure for that indictable offence that may be heard and determined summarily. And just to recap, how to proceed through this evaluation. Note that it's an indictable offence if it's punishable by more than two years. Focus your attention on the maximum penalty or whether the charge is included within Schedule 2. Note then that you move to Section 29 and consider whether the court might consider it appropriate and whether the accused considers it appropriate for the matter to be heard and determined summarily. And if not, then the matter then proceeds to filing hearing and the indictable offence moves through the committal stream. Now, a couple of observations in relation to the slides that follow. All of these uh, provisions are included in the slides. The procedure before summary hearing is outlined in sections 31 and 32, included at slide 18. At slide 19, the criminal procedure moves to the obligation on the prosecution to disclose its case. In the summary stream, there are two forms of disclosure. First is the preliminary brief under section 35 and following C slide 19. So the preliminary brief is disclosure in its most simple form. See section 37 for what is contained in a preliminary brief. And I'm not reading out every bullet point, but it includes the charge sheet, it includes a criminal history, and it basically includes the minimum that discloses the informant's case, a statement of the informant describing the alleged facts on which the charge is based, the background to and consequences of the alleged offence, and so forth. See slide 20. It also identifies the exhibits that the informant may draw upon. 
So the preliminary brief, as I've mentioned, is this abridged version of disclosure. And that might completely satisfy many accused because it gives them enough information that they know what they've been charged with and they can formulate their case in reply. For instance, if they accept that what the informant has claimed is true, then a preliminary brief is going to be enough for them to be able to formulate their response. The second category of disclosure under the Criminal Procedure Act in a summary hearing is the full brief under Section 39. Here, the accused by written notice to the police informant can request a full brief and there are certain time limits um, associated with the request and the reply. So a full brief, section 41, uh, is discussed at slide 22, 23, and you'll see from those descriptions that you get a much more fulsome record of disclosure under the full brief, including copies of statements, copy or transcript of audio recordings or audio visual recordings. I'm summarising legible copies of documents which the prosecution intends to produce as evidence photographs, forensic procedures, and so forth. So the full brief may be requested and provided in accordance with those provisions. The full brief starts approaching the level of disclosure that we'll talk about in a coming class about uh, the hand-up brief that's disclosed in committal proceedings. Note, please, slide 24 and the supplementary provisions that deal with ongoing obligations of disclosure and related provisions in the four, section 40s of the Criminal Procedure Act. Under section 50 and section 51, slide 27, we then see the limited obligation that's placed on an accused to disclose their case. So unlike the um, prosecutorial obligations of disclosure, whether preliminary or full briefs, the accused in a summary proceeding is only under two specific obligations to disclose their case. See slide 27, section 50, expert evidence is one obligation. So the accused, if they intend to call a person as an expert witness, must serve on the informant and file in court a copy of the statement of the expert witness at least seven days before the contest mention, or if the matter's not proceeding to contest mention, seven days before the summary hearing. We'll define these hearings in a moment. The second obligation of disclosure, and this is the last obligation of disclosure on the accused in summary proceedings, is alibi evidence under section 51, slide 27. So to a represented accused, an accused can't rely on alibi evidence without the leave of the court unless the accused has given notice of alibi. And the requirements of notice are discussed in slide 28. Slide 30, we've talked about the mention hearing, which is the first in a sequence of hearings that um, relates to summary proceedings. So whether they're summary offences or whether they're indictable offences, triable summarily. So a mention hearing is the first or a subsequent hearing that is a simple listing of a summary charge or an indictable offence, triable summarily. So on any mention date under Section 53 of the Criminal Procedure Act, the magistrate's court can proceed to hear the matter, so it could resolve as a plea of guilty on that date. Or if it's not going to resolve as a plea of guilty on that date, it can be booked in for a contest mention hearing, which we'll get to in a moment. 
or it can be adjourned for a full summary hearing of the charge, or it can be adjourned. So mention hearing, it can resolve as a plea of guilty, it can be adjourned for contest mention, it can be adjourned for a full hearing, or it can be adjourned for another mention. Note please section 53A and the documents to be provided by police at first mention hearing. So it comes back to the preliminary brief. If the full brief is prepared by that time, the police can uh, issue it. The next hearing in the scheme of magistrate's court hearings at summary hearings is section 54, dealt with at slide 31. And that's a summary case conference. Now we've talked about the idea that an accused at first mention may simply plead guilty to a charge and the matter can be summarily resolved on that date. With a summary case conference, now that can take place at the mention hearing, there is a more intensive workshopping of the charges or the alleged circumstances of offending or both. So a summary case conference under section 54 of the Criminal Procedure Act, slide 31, allows for a conference between prosecution, which may be police, and the accused for the purpose of managing the progression of the case. So it may allow for disclosure or sharing of documents or information. It may involve identifying what's in dispute. Could be the charges, could be the summary of alleged offending, it could be both. And it could be a discussion between prosecution and defence to identify steps required to advance the case. So if an accused attends at a mention on any occasion and there are matters to discuss with the prosecution that might facilitate resolution or advance the, the um, conduct of the case, a summary case conference can be heard on that occasion. Note, please, section 54, which is um, caught at the last bullet point of section 31, it is without prejudice. So what takes place on that occasion is in the spirit of resolution and neither party needs to be concerned that it might later be considered an admission. Now, a summary case conference might then resolve the matter and the matter can then proceed to a plea of guilty at a mention or it might not resolve the matter and it might be clear that the charges will not resolve or and or the alleged facts of offending will not resolve. At that point, the matter can be adjourned for one of two hearings under section 55 of the Criminal Procedure Act, see section, sorry, slide 32. An option available to the Magistrates Court is a contest mention hearing. So the matter can proceed from mention slash summary case conference to contest mention. And as you'll see from the description on the slide, a contest mention allows the Magistrates Court, magistrate in particular, to inquire actively into how long the hearing of the charge might take, require parties to estimate number and availability of witnesses, identify the issues in dispute and other matters that might facilitate the advancement of the case. So a contest mention differs from a case conference in that a magistrate will become involved at the hearing in the management of the case. So a contest mention assumes that there have been discussions or um, obliges the parties to undertake discussions with a, a view to either resolving the matter in whole or in part or then allowing the matter to be booked in for full hearing. A contest mention is not heard in every case. It's only if, um, under the Criminal Procedure Act, 
the magistrate considers that the matter would benefit from that sort of workshop and the accused is obliged to attend a contest mention. So if you're plotting through your procedure here, you've noted the mention and the availability of a case conference, which is um, can be heard on the same day as a mention. The mention may progress to a contest mention if it's thought that that would improve some process of resolution or management of the case, although some mentions proceed straight to hearing. Contest mention can either then lead to the resolution of the matter, so the matter could proceed as a plea of guilty, or it could then be booked in for summary hearing. Summary hearing, starting at slide 33, is the last in this sequence of magistrates' court hearings, and it assumes the full hearing of the matter. You can infer from the availability of a plea of guilty at any mention or any contest mention that it won't be every matter that's booked in for full hearing. It will only be the matters where some aspect of either the charges or the alleged facts of offending or both are in issue. So for the matters that can't proceed by way of mention or contest mention and they still haven't resolved, the matter will then be booked in for full hearing. We'll talk about procedure in a moment. A couple of points to note, slide 34. Note that the availability of a diversion program in the magistrate's court, this is sometimes assessed. Section 59 allows a matter to be adjourned for an accused to undertake diversion. See the preconditions which are listed at the second bullet point of that slide. So this happens before taking a plea from an accused for a summary offence or an indictable offence that may be heard and determined summarily. It allows a person who admits responsibility for an offence, who agrees to participate in a program and where the court considers it appropriate that the accused should participate, to be able to be involved in what's called the diversion program. The diversion program allows an accused, usually one with limited or no prior criminal history, who has admitted responsibility to an offence of fairly modest seriousness in the scheme of things, to be diverted entirely from a finding of guilt or from the sentencing process, provided that they satisfactorily participate in the diversion program, which can take up to 12 months, and satisfactorily comply with any conditions that the diversion program obliges them to participate in. So note that a diversion is not a sentencing outcome because, of course, there's no plea, there's no sentence. So it's not sentencing. Instead, it is, you might think, management. The charge, of course, will then be removed from the criminal justice system in the sense that uh, here I'm talking court-centric, there won't be a finding of guilt. Another procedure available in the Magistrates' Court under Section 60, Section 61, see slide 35, is a sentence indication. Under Section 60 of the Criminal Procedure Act, in relation to a matter that can be resolved summarily, the Magistrates' Court has power to indicate that if there was a plea of guilty to the charge, the court would be likely to impose on the accused either a sentence of imprisonment that commences immediately or not, or a sentence of a specified type. 
So it might be that an accused who um, faces a case conference, who faces a contest mention, or even who faces a summary hearing where they wish to plead not guilty, might be interested in the court indicating the type of penalty that would be imposed if they were to plead guilty and resolve the matter immediately. So the Magistrates Court has quite a broad discretion if they choose to give that indication. They can give either that imprisonment or no imprisonment indication or a sentence of a specified type. We'll talk about the sentencing outcomes, but it could be that the magistrate would indicate I would impose a penalty without conviction, or it could be that the magistrate would indicate that they would impose a sentence of a specified type like a fine. If an indication is given and the accused then accepts that indication and pleads guilty to the charge, the court must not impose a more severe type of sentence than the type of sentence indicated, section 61. And you'll see the other bullet points that there are other matters for noting there. Slide 36 relates to the procedure for physically entering a plea, and it can be done through the lawyer, if not through the accused. So that's another indicator of the fact that in the magistrate's court, some matters which require some formality in the, in the superior courts don't in the magistrate's court. If the matter proceeds to full hearing, a summary uh, contest, it's called in practice, or a contested hearing, the Commonwealth refers to them as special fixtures, then the procedure that is followed is summarised commencing at slide 37. And it resembles fairly closely uh, the procedure for trial in the superior courts, although it's, of course, it's just heard before a single magistrate. There's the facility for giving opening addresses, um, see slide 37 and 38. The accused, of course, is entitled to respond after the prosecution case has concluded. There is a facility for the accused to provide an opening address, see slide 39. And there's discussion at um, slide 40 of some of the ancillary matters, evidentiary burdens and so forth. Slide 41, closing addresses may be offered by the prosecutor and by the accused. And then there is determination of the charge. So, of course, at the conclusion of the summary hearing, the magistrate has the facility to return verdicts of guilty or not guilty and under Section 76 of the Criminal Procedure Act. If the accused is found not guilty of the full substantive offence, the court has jurisdiction to find the accused guilty of an attempt to commit the substantive offence. Okay, mercifully, we're coming to the end of these sort of not terribly interesting um, provisions. They're mostly descriptive, not terribly analytical. Note, please, slide 43 and criminal record, the particulars that need to be provided. And slide 44 relates to non-appearances and the consequences. One last postscript is uh, slide 46, sections 84 and 87 and surrounding provisions. When it comes to service of the preliminary brief, if the court is satisfied that a preliminary brief has been served in accordance with certain time limits, that provides a facility for certain evidence to be deemed admissible. 
So where it comes to the resolution of the matter, though the preliminary brief looks primarily like it it serves a disclosure purpose, it actually also serves a, a procedural and evidentiary purpose. And so under Section 84, if there's been proper compliance with those time limits and disclosure obligations, it may well be that the magistrate's court then accepts as admissible evidence described in that preliminary brief. So the court may then proceed to hear the evidence and resolve the matter, including recording a guilty finding against the accused if those procedural preconditions have been met. Just to finish up this discussion, uh, though it feels a little bit out of sequence, I'm going to deal with appeals from Magistrates Court now instead of dealing with a um, a block of discussion of appeals at the end, just because it, it, it suits the time limits available to us really neatly. And also we've now actually finished the discussion of Magistrates Court procedure in the summary stream. Where it comes to appeals and cases stated, I'll finish up the discussion of appeals from indictable resolutions of matter in the next discussion. Typically, there is a question involving an appeal or a case stated in every bar exam. It could be an appeal from the magistrate's court. It could be an appeal from a superior court. It could be an interlocutory appeal. It could be a case stated, but it seems that there's always one. In this part of the discussion, we'll focus our attention on appeals from the Magistrates Court. And here, you need to focus on Part 6.1 of the Criminal Procedure Act. There are four sources of procedure, and these are identified at slide, commencing at slide 48. Firstly, appeals by the offender. Two groups, one is conviction and sentence, section 254 of the Criminal Procedure Act, or purely against sentence, also 254. So the first heading would be appeal by offender, conviction and sentence, or sentence. The next heading, of course, would be appeal by DPP, and that can be against sentence, that's 257, or It could be an appeal by the DPP against the offender's failure to fulfil an undertaking, section 260. Undertakings are where, as part of a resolution of a case, the offender has made a promise to assist the prosecution in a particular way, usually by having given a statement and being willing to be called as a witness in a related criminal matter, so such as a co-offender, or in another unrelated criminal matter. So the undertaking is the mechanism, it's a solemn promise, usually on oath or affirmation, to assist the prosecution in a particular way. And it's a matter that the Magistrates Court may take into account and provide a sentencing discount, a mitigation of, of sentence. And I'll just finish introducing this point because it needs to be um, known. It's a a question that bar exam candidates often make a mistake in relation to. Let's assume that an accused has given that promise to assist the prosecution and the magistrate has imposed a sentence, offering that mitigation and building that into the sentence so that the accused has ended up with a more lenient sentence than would be available if they hadn't made that promise. And then the next month, the next six months, the next year, they refuse to fulfil that undertaking. Please note that the prosecution can't reopen the sentence before the magistrate before uh, who imposed the discounted sentence. 
the magistrate is what's called functus officio. They've handed down their decision and they have no more jurisdiction in relation to that matter. So if a question were asked saying that the accused then failed to fulfil that undertaking, what's the remedy? Please do not mishandle the answer by suggesting, oh, the prosecution just asks the magistrate to re-sentence because there's no jurisdiction to do so. Instead, Section 260 provides that facility for the prosecution to appeal to a superior court because the sentence is now objectively inappropriate because of the failure to fulfil the undertaking. So the take-home message in relation to Section 260 and in the next discussion we'll look at its analogue in the superior courts is that it's, it's, the remedy is an appeal against the leniency of the sentence. So they are the four sources of procedure. Looking at slide 49, you see the first two. So where an alleged offender wishes to appeal, Section 2541 allows the uh, person convicted in the magistrate's court in a criminal proceeding to appeal against the conviction and sentence to the county court or sentence alone. If you're interested, even a person who is released without conviction after a guilty finding has an order that they can appeal to the county court against under Section 2541. So a person might be released on a fine without conviction but they've still been found guilty. So under Section 3 of the Criminal Procedure Act, they can appeal against that guilty finding. Please see Section 255 of the Act, slide 49, as to the procedure for initiation, including time limits, 28 days after the day on which the sentence is imposed. So appeals against conviction and sentence or sentence from the Magistrates' Court can be heard in the County Court of Victoria. And under 256 of the Criminal Procedure Act, the appeal at this time is conducted as a rehearing and the county court must set aside the order of the magistrate's court and may impose any sentence which the court considers appropriate, which the magistrate's court imposed or could have imposed. And you'll have a look at the provisions, but essentially the county court or superior court is acting within the jurisdiction of the magistrate's court in that case, i.e. no more than two years for a particular sentence, no more than five years in aggregate. The next source of rights relates to the DPP. So under 257 of the Criminal Procedure Act, slide 51, assuming that the magistrate has imposed a sentence, the DPP has a right to appeal to the county court against that sentence. But under 2571, the test is if the DPP is satisfied that an appeal should be brought in the public interest. And 258 indicates the procedure surrounding commencement, including time limits of 28 days. Under 259, slide 52, like in relation to an alleged offender's appeal to the county court, the determination of the DPP's appeal 259 is conducted as a rehearing and the county court may set aside the order of the magistrate's court, impose any sentence which the court considers appropriate and which is within that magistrate's court jurisdiction, two years in a particular offence, five years over all. Now, See the provisions that follow in relation to other ancillary matters with with respect to procedure. 
So slide 53, um, there is, of course, the capacity to extend time by the Superior Court, but it is via the mechanism of leave. Slide 55, the sentence is stayed in the interim. So the sentence is stayed in the interim, but bail must be sought pending an appeal if the magistrate's court has imposed immediate custody. So while the order is stayed in, in the strict sense, the if you're representing a person that has been sentenced to imprisonment, then bail must separately be sought and permission to drive is another one that needs to be sought separately. Slide 56, the appellant, of course, may abandon an appeal either prior to the hearing or in the hearing and the consequences are the reinstatement of the order of the Magistrates' Court. See the provisions that follow in relation to other ancillary matters of procedure. The last point that I wish to draw to your attention starts at slide 62 and that is separately to the right to appeal that I've just discussed from orders of the Magistrates' Court. Of course, a party to a criminal proceeding can also appeal to the Supreme Court on a question of law from a final order of the Magistrates' Court. So in addition to the appeal rights I've just discussed, separately, if it's said that the Magistrates' Court has made an error of law, there can be a right of appeal on that question of law under Section 272 of the Criminal Procedure Act. As mentioned, see slide 62. And in the bullet points on those slides, it identifies procedure. Note, please, a couple of matters that I'll draw to your attention. That appeal does not operate as a stay of the order of the Magistrates' Court. The court this is the Supreme Court, hears and determines the appeal and may make any order it thinks appropriate. So if it finds there's been an error of law, it might be that a remitter to the Magistrates Court is the appropriate order, with or without a direction of law, or it could be the final determination of the matter. And the relevant provisions, sections 272 and 273, are set out at slide 64. In the next discussion, we're going to talk about committal procedures and all that follows uh, from that part of the Magistrates Court jurisdiction, including resolving the last of the rights of appeal from Superior Court matters. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.